Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Atlanta's newly appointed police chief, Darren Sherbaum, joins the program in just a moment. Also, Georgia Tech is working with the city of Atlanta to address socioeconomic inequities through research and community partnerships. We'll learn more about the new Center for Urban Research. Very important community conversations just ahead, but we begin with this. A Fulton County judge has blocked the state's ban on abortion starting around six weeks of pregnancy. This once again opens access to the procedure until about 22 weeks of pregnancy. Originally enacted as House Bill 481, titled the Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, or LIFE Act. So we'll talk more about it. Joining me now is the ACLU of Georgia Executive Director, Andrea Young. Welcome back to the program. Great. So good to be with you, Rose. Let's begin here because you all represented plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Remind our listeners, specifically Director Young, on what grounds were you all asking the judge to consider here? Yes. So this is a very important ruling, and I'm so pleased to say that abortion care has resumed in the state of Georgia. Our clients are now providing care in the way that they were before this abortion ban became uh, in effect. Um, and so what we challenged, um, we, we challenged on two grounds, but what the judge ruled on was this concept in Georgia law that's from the 1850s and has been consistent, you know, for well over a hundred years, that if a law is unconstitutional when it is passed, it is void. Um, and that is what Judge McBurney ruled that at the time that 481 was passed, mm-hmm. it was unconstitutional under Georgia Constitution and under Roe v. Wade. Um, it had and therefore the law itself is void. It's basically saying parts of it were unconstitutional when it was created and enacted in 2019. Mm-hmm. Something that struck me about this, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Director Young, because it there was this in the ruling from Judge McBurney. Quote, what does this ruling mean? Most fundamentally, it means that courts, not legislatures, define the law. This is nothing new, but it seems increasingly forgotten or ignored Mm-hmm. Close quote. Your reaction to that from the judge? Well, I, th- I think it's very important. I think that, you know, what we saw is that Roe v. Wade was 50 years of precedent. Uh, and yet we saw over and over and over state legislators going after and challenging and passing laws like 481 that were clearly unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade and under Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, the Georgia legislature, when we appealed that bill, immediately it was blocked by the Supreme Court, by the 
federal district court. The, the law was never in effect in Georgia until the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. um, and so Judge McBurney made the point that the, the criteria is the time the law was enacted, was it unconstitutional? And by every measure, this law was unconstitutional at the time of enactment. And of course, we are, we've reached out to Georgia's Attorney General Office. Now, Chris Carr, uh, in quotes, says they will continue to fulfill our duty to defend the laws of our state in court. Not surprising you that they are going to appeal this, that they maybe already have already filed the paperwork. I'm not sure, but this could yes, also. Have, Go ahead. They have filed a notice of appeal, um, which is not unexpected. Um, but in, you know, interestingly, they did not ask for Judge McBurney's order to be stayed. So abortion is now legal in Georgia in the way that it was before July. Uh, and uh, abortion care, reproductive health care has resumed. You are an attorney. Folks don't notice that so you, you actually are an attorney. But um, Governor Brian Kemp issued something that was very interesting because he says, quote, the personal beliefs are through his spokesperson saying, quote, the personal beliefs of a judge over the will of the legislature and people of Georgia. That's that's what he spoke of of Judge McBurney's ruling. Your yeah, reaction I, to that? I that? Yeah, I found that to be curious because Judge McBurney's ruling was clearly based in the law. He quoted Supreme Court precedent, you know, Georgia Supreme Court precedent from 1850, reaffirmed in 1900, reaffirmed in 1970s, reaffirmed in the 1980s. And so his opinion was firmly rooted in the law and not personal opinion. And I would say that the problem with 481 is that it was legislators imposing their personal faith beliefs on the women of Georgia. And of course, we believe that women should make these decisions with their own faith, their own families, their own position, and not politicians. If it indeed it does get taken up by the appeals court, then you all are prepared to go back and, and continue to argue on the same grounds. We will continue to defend this in every with every legal um you know, tool at our disposal. And as we also did challenge this under Georgia's right to privacy. The Georgia Supreme Court has also said it has a much higher standard for right to privacy than even the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we know that Georgians, we polled Georgians, Georgians believe in a right to privacy. 81% believe that we polled believe in a right to privacy when it comes to your own body. So on, on both this procedural issue, which mm -hmm. we think makes for very sound policymaking, you know, when, when people voted for 481 rows, it was a free vote because they knew full well this would not take effect. And it was unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade. And so when, when the legislature votes on a bill, they need to do it knowing that this is going to actually happen, that people are going to have their lives changed by what they decide. And that's what this that's what this standard of the Georgia Supreme Court, uh, that's what it gives you. It gives you this requirement that you can't just ha take a, po a political vote. It's got to be real. And I think listeners should understand, too, that when these measures are working their way through general assemblies and you have folks come up to testify, it gets to a, sometimes it gets to a committee, obviously, before it gets to a full vote. You have folks that testify, but sometimes giving the balance of the 
the political party in the state house, it, it doesn't matter if you have people who are viable experts who are giving testimony. You want you hoping that that changes, and and both parties could say that. You know, we're bringing in our experts. And so our experts are testifying based on X, Y, Z, what have you. But then it really does come down, and it's nothing new. The votes typically come down to the balance of whichever party. Yeah. And I will say, you know, Rose, you really bring up a good point, because this 481 was 30 days between introduction and final passage. And so it really did not have the full consideration. You didn't have the full course of hearings um, that one would expect for something that so dramatically changes. And I like to point out that Georgia, the current law in Georgia uh, that is now in effect, you know, abortions up to around 20 weeks, is a pre-viability statute. So this is a conservative statute um, that, you know, was less than was permitted by Roe v. Wade. Um, so this is, you know, and it's really important for people not to misrepresent uh, what what we what advocates are defending. I mean, we're defending a law that is a pre-viability law that is quite conservative in its effects. Through your lens, then, this was just through your lens, and I'm asking a question. This is another example, then, of politics being part of this. It's a big election year, obviously. Roe versus Wade is overturned. There's all of that involved. Is this a case where, again, it was politics over people? Yeah, I think it's very political and it doesn't, you know, we've seen that when voters have a direct opportunity to vote on access to reproductive health care in Kansas, a very conservative state, the voters protected access to abortion. In Kentucky, a southern state, the voters refused to take away you know, access to reproductive health care. So this is not the will of the people. This is a political tool um, that um, I think is, not, is certainly not grounded in good health care, good public policy, or respect for the women of Georgia. Andrea Young is the executive director for the ACLU of Georgia. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And again, we got statements from Attorney General Chris Carr and go to Brian Kemp. All of that will be on our website as well. Thank you, Director Young, for taking the time. Thank you so much, Russ. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Back in May of this year, I had a conversation with then-interim Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant as he was preparing to retire after serving the city for more than three three decades. And I asked him, I said, you know, tell me about what makes an effective police chief. I think effective police chief is one that can 
maintain a public, uh, maintain the police department and move it forward as, at the same time, providing a level of safety for the community that uh, he serves. Now, soon after that, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens launched a nationwide search for the city's next police chief. Didn't have to look far. Last month, Dickens dropped the interim tag from police chief Darren Sherbaum's title and named him chief for the largest law enforcement agency in Georgia. So you know what that means? Joining me now in studio, a fellow Midwesterner, lover of St. Louis Cardinals, St. Atlanta chief of police, Darren Sherbaum. Welcome to the program. Rose, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You're still a Cardinals fan, right? A previous Cardinals fan, I would have to say a Braves fan since 2002. Sorry to disappoint a fellow fellow Midwester. Yeah, this interview is going to be short. <laughs> Just kidding with you. Listen, I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, since your appointment, you've stated a few times that you plan to be out in the community. You wanted, you don't, you don't want folks to know that just because now you have this this chief title that you you're not you're going to be disconnected. You said you want to be back out in the community as much as you can. Why? You know, I think it's important every day an Atlanta police officer is carrying the community trust, the public trust. And the only way we know that we're meeting that trust and actually serving our citizens is to be in the community. An effective chief of police can't be leading from a desk or a keyboard. And so it's important for me to hear the citizens of Atlanta, what their concerns are, how we can serve them better, and how, how to be a better police department. What have you heard so far? You know what? The uh, citizens of Atlanta want to see their police officers. Uh, I've been able to walk in a number of communities, uh, parks, uh, nature trails. I had a, the opportunity to join the Nature Girls a group. Uh, we know them well. Yes, down yeah. in Zone 4 recently. And, you know, they, they want their police officers uh, to, to, to know them. Uh, they want to be able to see them out and about, have conversations with them. Uh, some of them want to share information of the, that was helpful to us. And I think that's important because we, we have to be part of the community to effectively serve the community. And it can't just be the chief of police that hears the voice of, uh, of our neighbors. You obviously, this is something, a message you tell the force, you tell your officers, and they are in agreement with that. They want to be out in the community. They don't want the community just to see them when there is a call for a need for an officer. That's right. We don't want a police report or even a citation to define our interaction with these citizens and, and the visitors of Atlanta. It has to be organic. It has to be meaningful. Uh, public safety is a team sport. Uh, the Atlanta Police Department cannot do it alone. Uh, we only succeed when we're in collaboration with the community, and those conversations are key to make sure we're, we're doing our part for a safe Atlanta. Oh, listeners may know this, but, you know, the, we can all access weekly crime stats for Atlanta. I know you review this and you've been looking at this. And what, what stands out to you? What's alarming for you? It's just the gun violence. I mean, the number of guns. Not only do I see the statistic, I see the police reports that reveal to me the individuals behind that crime, mm-hmm. uh, both the victim and the perpetrator. And I see guns are present in so many different occasions of anger. And I see the circumstances over which citizens lose their, lose their lives, arguments over too much mayonnaise on a sandwich, mm-hmm. arguments over a parking space. And suddenly we see this moment of anger leads to tragedy because someone has a gun and someone tries to use that gun. That's very concerning to me. And to ensure that guns aren't present in acts of anger and that guns aren't present in the, in the wrong hands is, is a priority of this police department. We all, you all can't be in everyone's household and you can't police folks mindset you can't do all that and I've heard folks say it takes a holistic approach again to combating gun violence because it starts with folks understanding if you're going to have a gun be responsible gun over or knowing when to draw your weapon there are a lot of things that you all can't control so how do you see your role in all of this and if it's a holistic approach who are those partners that you need certainly our, our partners are everyone that cares about Atlanta 
that is in Atlanta. So we partner with churches, we partner with youth organization. You know, Mayor Dickens recently had a, a gun buyback program we did with the Atlanta Police Foundation's Crime Stoppers program. And in just that short period of time, over 300 guns were turned into uh, the city of Atlanta's police department. So it's an approach that takes everyone, but the, the most effective approach is individuals using their influence as moms, dads, brothers, sisters, pastors, uh, rabbis, to be able to bring about a spirit of civility uh, that is present in our city, from parks to street corners to places of business, and that we're known as a city of civility and that we're all doing our part to, to promote that. I want to talk about the uptick in crime. And, and, you know, folks say this is still something that's increasing since the pandemic. It's folks that obviously some say, well, this also leads to the fact that mental health has been, there needs to be more resources for mental health. You could point to legislation as it relates to weapons. There's a whole lot of optics around here. You just talked about folks not being able to, you know, resolve conflicts without guns. Is there anything else related, you think, Chief, to this uptick in, in not just violent crimes, but also just gun violence? Does the does Georgia's now the law that, you know, it's permanent careless, you know, does that have an issue here? You know, I still think we're seeing uh, ramifications of the court system being shut down for an extended period of time. The courts are still working through a backlog. And when we see, because if you look now, our homicide rate this morning was is even where it was last year. It was at 0%. Uh, that's significant in that in around the month of May, we were almost 50% up in our homicide rate over the previous year. So there's been a, a focus over the summer uh, to, to focus on those things, such as the gangs present in the city, uh, drug dealing operations that contribute to that. And then our shootings are down 11% over t- this time last year. So there are some successes in the space. Uh, that's why we're very appreciative of the partnerships that we have with our sheriff, the district attorney, and our federal partners that's helped us being effective in those areas that we can, can uh, impact on. But what we can have an impact on is those moments of, of anger that happens very quickly. That's where we do need everyone's support as a police department. Well, I want to go back to something because 2021, I think the city ended at 158 homicides, no murders. And then, and I'm looking right at your, your stats here at 2021, 57. Right now, Atlanta's at 133. I'm looking at the stats here. So is that, do I have the wrong database? Yeah, yeah I don't know what date range you're looking at. This yeah. morning, we were we were 143 uh, against 143. We ended last year when the numbers were finally in at, I believe, 160 uh, was our homicide rate at the end of last year. Uh, one homicide uh, is way too many, but here's what is striking when you look at mm-hmm. what is the motivator for, for homicides in Atlanta. 35%, the highest category, is escalating dispute. Okay. You have to drop down to the next motivation of 16% where you see robbery mm-hmm. as the next motivator for a homicide in our city. What is concerning also is that we see that fully 10% is a domestic violence incident. Mm-hmm. And so this is where you start seeing escalating disputes, domestic violence, when you see an appeal from a police department of community action and community support uh, because that community approach will help us continue to see the drops that we're seeing and and hopefully we're gonna end this year below where we were last year Mm -hmm. and continue that trend in the next year, uh, 2023. And often it's repeat offenders as well. And then you can get into the whole debate about the court system. Do you, I'm imagining you have conversations with Fulton County District Attorney's Office and, and you talk to community leaders about what you all can do in terms of when folks for those serious offenses you know 
whether or not they get a bond. I mean, are you, are you a part of those conversations? Do you want to be a part of those conversations? Absolutely. We are. Mayor Dickens, in his approach for uh, Safe uh, Atlanta, one of those cornerstones is addressing repeat offenders. Because we have to understand the reason a person may commit a crime is unique to that individual. Mm-hmm. And we have some individuals that are committing crimes that need true mental health support. You need others that need support of a drug addiction or an alcohol dependency. But so you have some, rap, some other wraparound That's right. service. But you have others mm-hmm. that have uh, indicated to us by their 50th, 60th arrest. And that's not the highest I've seen on the weekly report. Or, or 20 or more felony convictions. That that individual is a true uh, menace to any of our neighbors in the city. So we work closely with the district attorney, uh, the sheriff. Uh, under the mayor's leadership, we created a a joint unit that sits very close to the courthouse mm-hmm. in Fulton County, where the district attorney, the sheriff, and Atlanta police investigators and staff are working closely to develop information on the most violent repeat offenders in the city, ensuring the courtrooms are equipped with that information. Because we just want proper, smart action in a courtroom that takes into consideration the safety of the community. Our- and the need of the offender. Chief, are you telling me that there are some folks who are considered serious violent offenders that are just in and out but keep getting a bond? I just want to make sure our listeners understand what That's you're saying. That's correct. That's correct. And if, if you go to the website of the Atlanta Police Foundation, we do have information on repeat offenders, uh, those that unfortunately find themselves in a revolving door. And our, our hope, and I believe I do believe we're moving in the right direction, mm-hmm. we're starting to see that, is that when that individual is in a courtroom, the judge has the full amount of information that they have to know is, is what bond is appropriate, uh, is incarceration necessary for the safety of the community, and even mm-hmm. the individual that's been arrested, or is this a need for mental health support, or is this a need for some type of support uh, for this individual or their family? Because the courtroom, without being equipped, to do a range of, of those actions doesn't, I don't believe, properly serve the safety of our of our neighborhoods. And I want to shift for a moment and talk about our youth because there's been an increase as well. And I know there there's so many programs out there that are trying to work with Atlanta youth in terms of giving them an alternative to maybe get into something they shouldn't be getting into. Um, because often, and we've seen this just in the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in violent crimes committed by folks under 18. You know, this is a region-wide problem. When we turn the news on, we've seen some very disturbing news reports uh, from across the region of juvenile arrests. And we're in the city uh, tonight. I'll be attending Midnight Basketball. Uh, which now, can is, you play, Chief? Uh, no, I will be cheering on Midnight Basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be very clear on that. You got your officers here. Right. Uh, I don't want to put them on a blast. If the Chief can't ball, he can't. You say you haven't seen okay. <laughs> we will have others that are, are representing their respective neighborhoods. But that, you know, we, we fight crimes many different ways in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's not always uh, a pair of handcuffs. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's not always a ticket. But we fight crime in this city with basketballs and soccer balls. Today, someone, you know, opened doors and turned on the lights at two mm-hmm. police athletic league centers in the city. Three at Promise Centers were open because of community support. Yeah. So you have individuals that are fighting crime three, five, ten years down the road, crimes that will never be committed. And when you have an event like uh, Midnight Basketball, that is that is the city's approach. Mm-hmm. And we've, there were studies done that said crime was reduced uh, around those centers and those neighborhoods where those events are occurring. And then we saw the number of, of juveniles arrested over the summer. Uh, drop as we had midnight basketball, the mayor's uh, employment initiative, mm-hmm. and then just men and women. And we only have these events of PAL centers and at Promise centers because of community support. Mm-hmm. And that is Atlanta coming together to say these crimes will never occur, and we are going to do our best as a city to ensure that young men and women do not fall under the influence of gangs and have the proper support to be fruitful members of, of our community. 
Don Staley, who is a great basketball coach at South Carolina, talks about the importance of PAL when she was growing up in Philadelphia. So I definitely know a lot about that. I want to shift for a moment to go back, talk a little bit about you now. I want to go back a few decades when you were a rookie. You know, they say with time comes knowledge and maybe wisdom, but um, that's not always the case. But uh, I want to go back to rookie Schoenbaum. What was he like? I was from Southern Illinois, uh, yeah. which is, you know well, yeah. from St. Louis, which is a very rural area, a lot of cornfields and, and coal mines. And I was in the big city, right? And I was I was wanting to be in a big city, and, and I had reasons to, to look for a city that embraced diversity and was a welcoming city. And that's what I found here in Atlanta, Georgia. And the first neighborhood I patrolled was Midtown uh, mm-hmm. out of the academy. That's where I was assigned. And I fell in love with that neighborhood, and that's where I wanted to live. And I've been a, a resident of that of that area for a long time now. And so it was a it was a, a young police officer that was uh, had an apartment that welcomed uh, individuals in. They had a lot of opportunities for them, and that really promoted knowing the community that you're protecting. How and, do, you, do you remember? Can you recall how you felt the community felt about you? Did they respect? Did you feel like you had respect that you know you were you were not out there to just be looking to arrest somebody? But you were there for a community. Did you feel that? Well, you know, as you're on patrol, you're going to encounter a wide range of citizens and residents of our city. You're going to encounter some that hold law enforcement in a high level of esteem, and you feel that. But you also encountered individuals that have not had that encounter with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It may have been negative. It may have been in a manner that has strained and broken the public trust. So every day, uh, as a a police officer and even as the chief of police, I made individuals that were either rebuilding our trust with that individual because there has been a true negative interaction or individuals that do have a strong support of their police department and we want to retain that. So I can't tell you that if I have 10 conversations Mm -hmm. with a resident of the city, there's going to be a range of their perception of their police department and their interaction with their police department. My job is to ensure at the end of the day, they know we are a police department that cares about them, that we are going to be a constitutional police department. We're going to be committed to their best interest. We're going to be competent when we show up. You're going to get a good job from us, and we're going to be compassionate how we interact with you. That is the standard I've laid out for every man and woman of this department, our sworn and our civilian staff, and that's the standard we're going to strive daily to meet. And when we don't, if we drop the ball, we're going to pick it back up, and we're going to rebuild that community trust. Speaking of standards, uh, I think with 2020, everything that happened, of course, with George Floyd and other uh, notable news headlines, Departments were looking at their standard operating procedures and policies. Have you had a chance to review? You think maybe there's something we can change or eliminate? Are you working through that? Is there something that you think you definitely want to pay attention to that you may want to implement through a different a different standard operating procedure? You know, any, any good police department is always in a state of innovation and progress, and you have to be. We have to be progressive, moving in a progressive manner to ensure that we're protecting and serving in a proper manner. Uh, we are an accredited law enforcement agency, mm-hmm. and so we have a within our culture, within the operations department, we have an, a review process that is always underway for best practices. Is it outdated? An area you will see me focusing on is the mental health of our officers and mm-hmm. supporting the men and women of the police department uh, that stand in the gap and bear the burdens for this city. Uh, we're going to make sure they're getting the full support uh, of mental health support, uh, of getting full support support of, of, of wellness. Training. Training is so vital. Uh, you see these fine officers here in the studio with me. Uh, they can do a lot of great things, but it didn't come with the uniform. It comes with the training that they uh, had that was formative and they continue as a police officer. The state of Georgia, unfortunately, has the least amount of hours required to become a certified yeah. police officer, which is a 10, 10 weeks in just a few days. Uh, these men and women you're looking at train for 35 weeks 
not because they have to, but because this department wants to, to ensure that we're properly prepared when we go to any of our 245 neighbors of the city. And we're, we're going to keep that commitment to remain innovative, and we're willing to look at any area uh, that we believe is time to uh, look at for a renewal or a new approach to protect Atlanta. Retention has been a problem, not just for APD, but many uh, departments throughout the nation. And I know that with pay, I mean, look, folks want to be paid. And, and you look at some of your neighboring counties and even uh, Louisville with former <laughs> police chief Shields put a billboard up saying, hey, y'all can come to Kentucky. I mean, what do you make of that? What's been the challenge in retaining officers? You know what, right now you have uh, a number of agencies that are hiring police officers because of the, what has occurred in the country. Some individuals have said, this may not want to be the profession I want to serve in, but let mm-hmm. me tell you what, there is no rewarding, more reporting profession than being a police officer and a 911 dispatcher. And we have two hiring events coming up soon, by the way. So before we get off the air, I do want to give you those dates and times. But we are going to, we are going to work to keep the men and women that have trained and started their service with the Atlanta Police Department. And Mayor Dickens this year uh, found the money to be able to do a retention bonus for our officers that are serving the Atlanta Police Department. Over 90% of the department signed up with that within the first opening phase of that. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to be providing take-home cars, which we know is a very competitive area other jurisdictions have done. The mayor has found the money to be able to start the first ever take-home car program for officers that live in Atlanta, Georgia, that are answering 911 calls in Atlanta, Georgia. So, no, I'm going to fight to keep every man and woman that has started here. But you're short, too, right now. Aren't you down a few hundred, or has that changed? Because when I had Mayor Dickens on here, and it was early in the year, he said that there was a significant shortage of officers. Or where are you now? That's correct. So our authorized strength is 2035, Mm -hmm. and we're about 400 short of that. We're making uh, inroads to stabilize it and build it back up. But let me tell you this. We are still the largest law enforcement agency in the state of Georgia. And so we're going to police like it. And we're the largest law enforcement agency in the state of Georgia, and we're going to engage our community like that. We still have the size and the expertise that is unique only to this law enforcement agency. So we're going to continue to leverage that as we build back up. Because, you know, we have the World Cup coming in 2026. We have the college football championship game coming in 2025. And we just might have one of the uh, Democratic institutions Mm -hmm. nominating here in our city in 2024. We're waiting to get the word on that. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be back to the the, uh, size that we need to be to be able to welcome those events. But until then, we will continue to find new ways to leverage our size and expertise to keep the city safe. Under the previous administration, Governor Brian Kemp had threatened, in a sense, to, or as they said, we can support the city of Atlanta and help them with their crime by, you know, bringing other forces in here, state patrol, whatever you have it. You hear that. I don't think any police chief wants to hear that, that they need state to come in and help them serve their community or police their community. I mean, you were on the force when all this happened. What were you thinking then? You know, we uh, public safety is collaborative and it's apolitical. No one should look at their law enforcement and say, is it Democratic or Republican? We have a full uh, force approach to fighting crime in the city. We have roles in in collaboration for Georgia State Patrol. And they they do join us in the city. And we're appreciative when they're here. And we want to thank the mayor for building those relationships. Uh, We have a number of federal agencies. Uh, that are working out of police headquarters. We have investigators assigned uh, to the FBI, to the DEA, to the ATF. Uh, We work very closely with the district attorney sheriff. Those are collaborations. That's correct. Not under the threat of if you all can't handle folks in your – because that's how it came out. That's how it was interpreted. Interpreted that the governor was saying, look, if you can't control that, we can come in there and handle it. And that didn't didn't go over too well. You know that. You know what? We have have still continued to be the premier uh, crime-finding agency. 
Uh, we are at the forefront of crime finding in, in Atlanta. You can't go through a neighborhood where you don't see an Atlanta police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have collaborative initiatives. Um, I have never felt that anyone was, was coming to take the job over the Atlanta Police Department. Uh, when someone joins us in the city to fight crime, that is appreciative, and there's a role for that, right? Mm-hmm. This is the state capital. And so we, we have 245 neighborhoods, half a million people call us home, uh, and large events come here. And so it's not going to be uncommon to see various uniforms in the city fulfilling their role of public safety because the world comes to Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, and so uh, we make sure that the collaborations are strong. So when there is a large event, you will see multiple uniforms at work for the safety but of the But even state. when it's not a large event, right. if it's a if it's protest, if it's, if it's something that's happening that, that, you know, is maybe unique to the city or not, Folks want to know that the Atlanta Police Department will be there and not just have this influx of seeing military. I mean, you saw this during 2020. You know, you saw the police. You saw I think I saw a tank downtown. I mean, well, you know, was a tank necessary. Well, 2020 was a unique time That's right? what that, I did. That, that the city hadn't seen in 20 years. Right. We had not this department not had used uh, tear gas in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and it was that time. So that was a unique time that isn't reflective. But I tell you what, today I have already spoken this morning in a conversation with the colonel of the Georgia State Patrol. Uh, we know when they're in the city and we know how they're deployed so we can collaborate that before the day's over i will speak with the sheriff of fulton county uh, these are conversations that are about the people of this city of this county of the state and this isn't a competition uh, for uh, dominance of a law enforcement agency mm-hmm. this is collaboration for the safety of our city and so uh, any 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 conversation we have is about the citizens and uh, you will always see your police department the Atlanta police department leading the way for public safety right here in Atlanta, Georgia. As we begin to wrap up, I want to talk about our littlest citizens because I have a, a, a note here from a listener that says, ask him what his protocols protocols are when it comes to protecting our kids in schools, specifically school shootings. We are concerned about our kids, signed a concerned parent. I mean, obviously, you know, we could spend a whole nother segment talking about how we ensure the safety of our kids in schools and with school shootings and campuses, obviously, this week, past week. Um, I don't know if any police department can properly plan, but you have a plan. We do. Uh, we, we speak, uh, again, I want to go back, you know, Chief Applin, Atlanta Public School Chief of Police, mm-hmm. Chief Conley uh, over at Georgia Tech, uh, the Chiefs of Police over at the AU Center, which we speak with regularly. Uh, we prepare for the unthinkable. And you, you saw part of this when the Midtown shooting occurred mm-hmm. uh, recently. And you saw officers starting to show up from the Fulton County Sheriff, uh, from Georgia Tech, from Georgia State. I think MARTA, too. MARTA. Yeah. Because why did they show up that day? We'd already trained for that incident. Okay. So various uniforms, but the same approach, the same training, the same doctrine of how are we going to isolate, quickly contain and end this threat. So we have been training for years for the unthinkable, regardless of where it happens in Atlanta. Uh, God forbid it should happen on any of our campuses, uh, be it elementary, high school, or, or college. You're going to see every law enforcement agency responding. You're going to see us responding in a manner that is effective because we've trained for that. And outside that event, we share information very regularly. Uh, we sit in meetings looking at information that says, how can we best protect students mm-hmm. and faculty and staff who are present inside of Atlanta, Georgia? So, again, we're blessed with a strong collaboration of the chiefs of police from the AU Center over at, at Morehouse and Spelman. Uh, a lot of those in, uh, chiefs of police are former APD commanders. Yeah. And so we have a good working relationship with them uh, as we work to ensure that this is a safe city to send your students and to enjoy uh, the academic um, uh background of Atlanta, Georgia. And finally, Chief, as it relates to your leadership style, what is that one attribute that you think is important for how you're going to do this job moving forward? We are all in this together. 
it doesn't matter what the rank is on your shoulder. Uh, the oath is the same and the badge is the same as that we're protecting Atlanta, Georgia. And I want to lead from the front to be out on the street with the men and women. Uh, I want to be approachable and collaborative, open for new ideas. Uh, this is a great city to live in. Love living here, and it's my honor to protect it. I'm appreciative of the mayor for bestowing up any of this, this trust. And I look forward to coming back with you uh, many times as we can work with your listeners to make a safe Atlanta, Georgia. All right. I really appreciate that. Police Chief, Atlanta Police Department Chief of Police, Darren Sherbaum. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. You, you had three officers. Did you really need three for little old me? Oh, no, no, no. We, we have other things <laughs> we'll be doing today. So, <laughs> like, I'm, I have never harmed any officer. <laughs> These are our great public affairs officers, too. So. Yes. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There is a partnership between the Georgia Institute of Technology, or as we plain folks say, Georgia Tech, and the City of Atlanta Office of the Mayor. Well, they're partnering to launch the Center for Urban Research. And in a nutshell, the focus is to address socioeconomic inequities through research and community partnerships. And we've talked about that word before, partnerships. So let's find out more by welcoming David Edwards. He's director for the Center of, for Urban Research. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Good to see you again. You know, I just had the conversation with the APD police chief, and he talked about partnerships, and it takes partnerships to get things done, maybe not just in Atlanta, but throughout all of our nation here. How did this partnership come about between Georgia Tech and then the mayor's office, and and why this Center for Urban Research? Well, in the wake of the Black Lives Matters movement uh, in, in the spring of 2020, we started having some conversations locally about well, what, what is the real structural response to this and, and what can we do really to more fundamentally address the root causes of a lot of this unrest. And uh, so Shirley Franklin and Egbert Perry and several others started having conversations with nonprofits, with academics about what we could be doing in a more organized way to change public policies that might improve the conditions, particularly in our most distressed neighborhoods. And as we were doing that, we ended up having conversations with some folks at Georgia Tech and the President Cabrera was in the middle of completing really the, the strategic plan for Georgia Tech that was mm-hmm. going to be dedicated towards improving conditions and closing racial equity gaps in the city. And so it just seemed like a natural place to create a center that could be focused on this topic. And, and let me ask you, are you aware of there is there are there similar type of centers or partnerships in any part of the country? There are centers in academic institutions focused on on urban issues, et cetera. But I think this is the first one that's really had this kind of partnership with a mayor and a city government to work collaboratively, to really serve as a platform for collaboration for the for the work that we're doing in the neighborhood. So it's really, I think, Mayor Dickens and his unique commitment to uh, closing racial equity gaps through place-based transformation, I think has really created, I think, a unique opportunity for us. So someone listening says, okay, is this more of a, of a think tank where you're going to bring people together and you come up with ideas and then you try to find those other partners to implement them? How exactly will this work? Well, it's going to really have three three components. One is what you would expect in a university-based uh, a center, which is research, program evaluation, data, all, all the stuff that really drives a lot of the thinking behind this work. But we also that's the first piece. And the second piece is going to be collaboration. So bringing everyone who's involved in this work in the neighborhoods, so nonprofits, public sector agencies, um, community organizations, 
bringing them together and giving them a chance to figure out, well, what should we be doing in our neighborhood mm -hmm. and specific to our neighborhood? What should be the plan going forward? And then in the last piece is really the implementation uh, side of this. So we're going to provide technical assistance to these neighborhoods mm -hmm. with feet on the ground to really make sure the work gets done in a way that it, uh, that advances the, the vision for the neighborhood. Let's give our listeners an example because one of the current projects is this neighborhood improvement planning and what you're the lead on. And, and I guess at the core of this is that you all will facilitate and come up with some type of project management for neighborhood improvement plans. That, that could mean a lot. There's a lot under that. Yeah. Well, there's the, we have six of these that are really underway right now. And one example would be in Thomasville Heights. As you're aware, mm -hmm. we had a, a major catastrophe there with Forest Cove. It was a mm -hmm. real fire drill to deal with a, a, a crumbling uh, multifamily apartment complex. And it was a whole process for, for getting the residents there out and into safer housing. But what that has done is create an opportunity to say, well, we've got assets in this neighborhood. We've got the, the Forest Cove apartments itself. We've got public housing property that has not been redeveloped. that has been sitting vacant for, for over a decade. There are some other public assets. There's now an empty elementary school. Mm -hmm. So the question is, well, what do you do with all these assets? And how do you how do you invest in them in a way that generates a healthy, thriving neighborhood? And the way you do that really is just to get with the neighborhood, get with the leadership, get with the nonprofits that have been working there. And let's think about what kinds of investments should we be making. And so we're in the process of developing a really a small area master plan for Thomasville Heights that includes education, housing, transportation, green space, public infrastructure, all the things that neighborhoods depend on. And we will build the business case, what we call business case for investment that will bring public dollars, philanthropic dollars, commercial dollars to that neighborhood and that we hope will generate a healthy, thriving place of, uh, over the next few years. And I want to I want to focus on something that you said, because often and you, you've been around Atlanta and, and this is probably not just unique to Atlanta, but so many neighborhoods feel like when it comes to these new initiatives and projects, often they are let let left out of the planning process. You know, it's it's and I can understand someone seeing folks coming into their community and and you feel like, OK, are you going to make sure that we are involved in this process are you making sure that the community, whether it's community leaders or longtime legacy residents, that if they want to, they can be a part of this, too? Or is it just strictly you all have a set of folks that you want to work with? No, it all comes from the bottoms up, Rose, and it, it really begins with, with the residents. And one of the challenges we face is that in some neighborhoods, you have more of what we call civic infrastructure, so more neighborhood-based organizations than other neighborhoods. And so in some cases, you have to build it over time and kind of help catalyze the development of that in other neighborhoods like places like grove park for example which is another focus area mm -hmm. you've got you've got a very active neighborhood association you've got the grove park foundation you've got a lot of work that's been going on there for the last 10 years really under the purpose-built communities effort so as a consequence of that you have lots of people to work with in fact you've already got a lot of plans or that have already been done in a place like grove park this is it's more about implementing what the neighborhood has already agreed to what they've already uh, developed plans around in places like Thomasville Heights, you're starting more from scratch because right. it really hasn't been work and you've got to you've got to build it up. But at the end of the day, all of this has to be not only I don't like the term community engagement. I think you need community ownership. You need the community to feel as if this is their work and that, that this is their plan and that they have a stake in its outcome. How do you all do that and empower them to do that and work through that when also you have outside factors that you can't control? And that is maybe a developer coming in or a, and not necessarily that it's going to be a bad thing, because I'll get an email about that. But, you know, you know, a, a big tech company coming in or 
moving adjacent adjacent to that neighborhood? I mean, how do you make sure that you all can work through all of that? Because those are factors that you can't control. You mean a tech company like Microsoft, for example? Is that what you're getting out of there? Of course, really? Microsoft yeah. or Google or anybody. Well, let's take Microsoft as an example, which I think is a really uh, important one, only because it's really going to be the biggest private invest, single private investment I think well, this city has ever has ever mm -hmm. experienced. So Microsoft, is, as most of your listeners will know, has bought 90 acres off of Hollowell Parkway in the middle of Grove Park, right next to the Westside Park. They're planning a, a large corporate yes. campus there could bring mm -hmm. as many as 15,000 residents. So the question is, how do you make sure that that investment rebounds to the benefit of the neighborhood? And to their credit, Microsoft has engaged deeply with the neighborhood, and they're part of this team that we've assembled to, to develop the, the investment plan for, for Grove Park. And, you, and, and so in those kinds of circumstances, it's quite, it's, it's, in fact, it's actually necessary to have the own private owners of property at the table because they have mm -hmm. these assets that you want to include. And so, and the good news is in most of these places that we're working, we have, we have developers who want to be part of this process. They see that whether many of them see that this is as part of their mission really is to advance the interests of the neighbors, but, they're, but they're also they have obviously profit and loss interests as well. And so it's, it's going to be beneficial to them if the neighborhood also improves with them. So there's usually an alignment of interests in that regard. Usually it is, but you and I both know that that's not always the case. So, But if you're telling me that you're going to make sure that residents and legacy residents and folks who live in that community who can, this is something you can't control, maybe be able to stay in that community, that they're going to be part of the process. Will the students at Georgia Tech also be involved in this center as well? Absolutely. In fact, part of the reason to do the center is to channel all this great student and academic energy that's done. There's a, there's a surprising amount of work, Rose, you may, you, given the folks that you talk to, you probably know as much as I do about this, but there's an enormous amount of academic research that's being done, whether it be in health, mm -hmm. education, housing, locally, that frankly, you know, when I spent eight years at the in the Franklin administration, we didn't take advantage of all that. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, how do you take advantage? Of, how do you put that to use? And so we now have, I think, eight different projects that the center is already sponsoring that's addressing specific questions to advance this work and this agenda that the mayor has laid out and his part and his partners so we're already channeling that energy i'll be i'm teaching a course at georgia tech this spring and we will have student teams that will actually go out and work in the neighborhoods and, and answer specific questions that we need answered not just academic exercises but actual work that we need to that we will leverage in the work going forward and then finally, and this may be a little bit too early to determine, but you tell me if you're going to talk about the effective, effectiveness of this center and, you know, the work that you all have going on with these projects, do you give yourself a timeline in terms of assessing, hey, this is working, this is not working, or hey, we need to scrap this and start over? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the effectiveness of the center, since it is a platform for collaboration, will be the participation of those collaborators. And mm -hmm. so what we're really trying to create is a place where all of these folks are doing this work, whether it be city, whether it be uh, APS, whether it be nonprofits, really take full advantage of this opportunity. And we're going to try to leverage this work over the course of this mayor's term and see where we are, frankly. And we'll, we'll see whether this is actually delivering. Are you looking for folks also to be collaborate, collaborators? Do you need folks right now? Do you need to tell folks, hey, we need some input from this sector or folks who have an interest in this. If you are doing work in neighborhoods, really, if that's that's the kind of bar that we've set. If you're doing any kind of work in neighborhoods, really trying to help improve conditions in neighborhoods, we want to be a partner of yours. And this is a place I think you not only can you work, but you can also find other 
collaborators. So absolutely, please uh, go to our website um, at the Georgia Tech on the Georgia Tech, uh, the Center for Urban Research at Georgia Tech, and please let us know how you can, uh, if you'd like to participate in one way or the other, we're, we would love to uh, we kind of cast a wide net for, for collaborators. I ask folks this question all the time because Atlanta is still, I think, you know, trying to figure out its identity. You ask people that question, you'll get a whole bunch of different answers. But what is Atlanta's identity as it relates to the service to its people and its residents? And, and what concerns do you have, especially in this area where you're working with social economic issues? Well, you know, Atlanta should be a leader in this space. Um, we should be a national model for how we are eliminated, really eliminating the legacy of our decades of public policies and private actions that have segregated our city, that have concentrated poverty. We are not doing nearly enough um, in that space uh, and to really lead the country in that. And so that's, that's really what this this work is, is, is intending to do. And that's what I think Mayor Dickens is trying to do, is just to show the way. But how do you get this right? How do you do mm -hmm. this in a way that protects the legacy of the city while also creating opportunities for particularly for families and youth to thrive. David Edwards, director for the Center for Urban Research, the new Center for Urban Research. It's a partnership with Georgia Tech and the city of Atlanta, the office of the mayor. Thank you, Mr. Edwards, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to see you, Rose. Same here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it's free. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.